All right. Hi, everybody. Paul Swearingen here from uh, the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. Glad you're with us today as uh, we're going to have a lively discussion on a topic that I think gets everybody's skin moving a little bit as we talk about Christianity and, uh, and proximity to civil government power. And we just threw in the name Nazis in the title to really spruce it up. And so glad you're with us. Our discussion today is brought to you by the Nonpartisan Evangelical, intersecting faith and politics as, as normal, which you can find on uh, facebook.com forward slash group slash intersecting faith and politics. And also we're joined today by our friends from Vote Common Good. Tim Gilman is with us here. And Tim, we love you guys at Vote Common Good. Give us a brief thumbnail of what BCG is doing with the election just, what, less than 60 days away. Everything we can to stop the re-election of Donald Trump. <laughs> That's saying it in a very succinct manner. Uh, vote common good. Hi to all you folks joining us from the BCG page. We have a great panel today to discuss the topic. And Tim, since you've already jumped in here, I'm going to go around the horn here and everybody tell who you are, where you are, and, and what interested you to volunteer to be on the panel today. So Tim, start us off. My name is Tim Gilman. I'm the creative director for Vote Common Good. I've been observing a slide of reasoning and logic that parallels the German experience for the last 10 or 15 years. And I think that it's something we have to bite the bullet and look closer at. But for the grace of God, there go we very rapidly. And you're up there in Oregon. And like those of us down here in California, we're praying for our states, which are literally on fire today. My wife is at the evacuation center volunteering. I'm actually in Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're on the right. road. Yeah, that's right. You're on the road. Yes, our prayers are for the West Coast right now. And, and uh, literally ash was coming down like snow here yesterday. So the fires are tremendous and scary. And it's still very orange outside. So save our landlord. All right, Brian, you're next. Hi, everyone. I'm Pastor Brian Kleinammer. I have an online ministry at KingdomCulture2.com. Primary goal is to help build kingdom culture leaders in this uh, new age. And I am here on this panel because I've been seeing the caustic effects of supremacy within the 21st century American church, just supremacy on all levels. And uh, I think this is a critical topic for us to discuss at this time. All right, Brian, appreciate it. Manuel, you go next. Yeah, I'm Manuel. I work with a anti-trafficking nonprofit called Ethical Trading Company. I'm originally from Germany. I've been here in Madison, Wisconsin for 19 years, working with a mission organization, running Bible schools and other things. And yeah, now I work in uh, trafficking. So, well, you know, trying to work against it. Fighting against it. There you go. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm interested in this topic from some studies in church history, specifically Constantine, who legalized Christianity and everything that came along with that, as well as, of course, having a Lutheran background and a German background, learning about the sins of my nation and dealing with the sins of my nation and trying to figure out how to uh, be a nation that can bless uh, the world. And yeah, my first thought when I became an American about a year ago was, oh, shoot, now I have a whole other set of sins to identify with. And I've been <laughs> that, so. All right, great stuff. And Blake is with us. Blake, tell us about you. 
Yeah, my name is Blake Severson. I'm a pastor at the Presbyterian USA Church in Rock Island, Illinois. I am from originally the uh, Madison area, Lodi, Wisconsin, and graduated from Derby High School, so go Wisconsin. But I am I was interested in this because a part of our theological underpinning of our denomination is something called the Declaration of Barman. And it was the moment that the Reformed churches, the Reformed Evangelical churches, um, Lutheran Evangelical churches, all these different Evangelical churches broke away from the German church that had basically enmeshed itself with the Nazi party. And Karl Barth has always been a theological titan in my mind. and He's one of the uh, main authors of that document. So uh, I've been watching this since 2016 saying, oh my God, here's another Bonhoeffer moment. Here's another Bonhoeffer moment. Here's another Bonhoeffer moment. And I, I think... You know, we don't want to draw the line directly to Nazis because that's just what we do in our culture. But it's just impossible to miss with some of this stuff. And I think and we'll talk some about this. I think all of us feel constrained to start to make those kind of comparisons. But there is some things going on that make you say sometimes. One of the things that we had talked about as a panel is it's just giving a, a definition of Nazism as we go into this, and this was given to me, it's from Wikipedia, and it says Nazism is a form of socialism in that it seeks to socialize the Aryan race at the expense of races the Nazis deemed inferior and impressive. Contrast this to Marxism, another form of socialism which seeks to socialize the proletariat at the expense of the bourgeoisie. The Nazis believed that only the Aryan race was capable of building nations and other races, notably the Jewish race, were agents of the corruptive forces of capitalism and Bolshevism, both of which the Nazis opposed. The Nazis blamed the Jewish people for Germany's defeat in World War I. This is known as the stab in the back myth. The Nazis also blamed the Jewish people for rapid inflation and practically every other economic woe facing Germany at the time as a result of their defeat of World War I. So I, I do think it's interesting, and maybe somebody would like to chime in on this. There was sort of a, and man, maybe you you started. As I look at that history of World War II, it, it almost seems like there was a a national shame, or like Germany was basically blamed for World War One, and so there was this feeling of the people of maybe we're not as good as we thought we were. And how did that play into then a Hitler coming along and saying, "No, you're the greatest people in all the world"? That maybe gave him some entree to the people. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting. We would study these uh, things basically every year in school, age appropriate. And it was really interesting to see how he won the hearts of the Germans. We'll, we will make Germany great again. And we have these plans and these ideas and all this other stuff has failed. And it's interesting to note that it was really a failed government that got him into power. There were, what, three elections within a few months and the parliament was uh, failed. And finally, they're like, let's give this guy a shot. And he's like, we will have to make some drastic changes for this not to happen again and for the government to be able to work. And people were like, yeah, nope, that sounds good. We, we trust what you're doing, especially we'll get to the question about the church soon. But I, I think there was definitely a bomb to the soul of people that out and had a proud past with great composers, poets, uh, world changers, thinkers, we're known as the land of poets and thinkers. And here we were on the ground and somebody came telling you, I'm going to pick you up. Uh, I think that was very attractive. So do, do we see a parallel with today in that, anybody? 
Yeah, I, I would say absolutely we do. I've got, uh, being a Wisconsin boy, I've got a lot of very Trump-supporting friends from home, and they've, we get in conversations, and it's, you've got a master's degree, I work hard, and I'm forgotten. And I also think of the, the reconstruction. Germany went through a reconstruction after the devastation of the first war, and, and they got smacked hard in that reconstruction by the rest of the world. And so it crushed the economy. And the same thing was happening in the South, in America, after the Civil War. Eventually, they were let off the hook. And we chopping at the bit to read Heather Cox Richardson's book, uh, How the South Won the Civil War, um, because it talks about the history of how Reconstruction not seen through was one of the reasons we still have this sense of the antebellum, beautiful South. And um, so I see some connections in American history there as well, that some of the white nationalist stuff we're seeing now is so connected to this perceived slight after the Civil War that's carrying on to this day because it was never properly dealt with. Should we, and we see that. And then, of course, there was the blaming of the race of the Jews. They're the problem here. We definitely know that Donald Trump likes to point out people groups as the problem. Do, who sees a parallel in that or who has some thoughts about that? I would say that from for a long time now, even before Trump, I saw this, but with Trump especially, because I always have to remember Trump is not really the problem. Trump is merely a, an in-your-face symptom of the problem. He simply was smart enough to exploit the marginalization that was already there. So we, we were already on a path of otherizing anyone that didn't think like we, we did. American Christians were on that path of otherizing anyone that didn't think and believe the way they believe. So he just simply exploited it. So I've had this conversations regarding Hitler and Nazism with many people, and I resisted a long time going there. And what I would always say is that I'm not saying that he's Hitler, but I'm saying the logic and reasoning that is being played out is exactly the same. The logic and reasoning of believing that if we, if just, if that those people are our problems, if we just had this and this, then we would be great. And uh, so I would agree with you. I think it's a very slippery slope. If it wasn't for those gays and elites and media and yeah, whoever, yeah, Mexican I would, rapist, and, you name it. And Manuel would probably be able to comment to this better, far better than me, but I would almost even guess that the whole thing with the Holocaust and everything probably ended up at a whole different place than anybody even dreamed it could have got you. So there's some point in this process where evil truly kicks in and, and you go past the point of no return. And once you do that, only thing you know to do is to kill and destroy. And I think that it's this exact same otherizing. And, and this, and I'll be quiet, is that it, it all goes back to a very flawed image and understanding of God. Mm-hmm. It's true. I think well, it's a problem. It's a problem as old as Judas, right? Judas disagreed with how Jesus was going about it. It was going to upset people, so we got to change, and we need to work with the powers, not against them. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Uh, the main thing that I've seen from the beginning was the anti-Islamic rhetoric. I remember I was in Belize at a feast thrown on thrown for us by a Lebanese uh, Muslim. Amazing feast I was teaching down there, and CNN was on in the background. And it was the speech where he was, I, Donald J. Trump, J, Donald J. Trump, call on all Muslims to be banned from entry right now. And 
it was such an interesting juxtaposition being treated so well by our friends there and the hatred that came from that rhetoric. And that was concerning to me because that was the same anti-Semitic language that you heard uh, in Europe at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's very similar. Wow. And so, yeah, Manuel, you had, had started to go there before, but maybe somebody else wants to jump in. Brian, we definitely want to get you involved in here. Kind of, Brian, what are your thoughts as you're listening to where we've started in this discussion? I think that where we're at right now is the result of a perfect storm of undeserved successes and uh, unexpected failures. You've got a, a, a series of maybe over the last 15, maybe even going back to 20 years of a certain message that is preached at, ch preached at churches overall, which is love, compassion, generosity, gifts of the spirit, all these things. And then you have a type of narrative that is promoted through, pro through propaganda disguised as news. So you would go to Sunday morning church, get all this good stuff. Then you get propaganda the following evening and the rest of the week saying, if it were for them, you would be happy, you would prosper. And then, of course, they, that group, under the guise of they, keeps growing and growing to include anyone, Muslims, LGBTQ, liberals, feminists. And now we've got Antifa, which is the propaganda label for protesters. All of this happening as an unlikely success. The, the, the failures come from on part of journalism where... You have uh, still corporate-sponsored journalism who does not adhere to this ideology, but is still not taking the courage to call it out and label it what it is, which is essentially a prelude to fascism. You've got big money involved. You've got an ideology that has grown that not directly confront power. You do not directly confront money. You skirt around it instead of saying they're lying you say, there seems to be a disagreement on the facts where the truth is concerned. And so therefore, undeserved successes, unexpected failures, creating what I believe where we are right now. Interesting stuff. All right. Glad uh, you guys are all joining us who are out there watching through the Vote Common Good site, Intersecting Faith and Politics and Nonpartisan Evangelical. If you want to chime in, you can hit your comments. Lauren is monitoring for us today, and we'll try to get to whatever comes in. But Let's talk now about the church and the Nazis and how did the church end up intersecting with the Nazis and not standing up and saying, hey, this is wrong. And again, is, we're always looking, is, is there a parallel with what the church is doing today? Who wants to jump on that one? I have a lot of stuff on that, but I also don't want to control the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but, go ahead, jump. You jumped first, yeah, man. You'll go. Go for it. So there's a few things here. First of all, there's, uh, of course, our hero in Germany, Martin Luther. And we have to understand, when Hitler came to power, everybody in Germany identified as Christians. Basically 100%, 99%, 1% uh, Jewish. And 60% were Protestants, 40% Catholics. And Luther actually wrote in his book, The Jews and Their Lies, he argued that synagogues and schools should be set on fire, prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes burnt and property and money confiscated. And he is a hero, right, in Germany. And he is has done so many great things. But this is something that was embraced. This is the kind of thinking that was embraced. 
And then there was a, we talked about the political backlash where the Weimar Republic uh, had failed, which was more social, anti-communism sentiment, nationalism, and uh, resentment towards the international community and somebody coming in and saying, I'm going to make you great. But I want to read you a statement here that Hitler, uh, the Nazis had as part of that platform. And it says, we demand the freedom of all religious confessions in the state insofar as they do not jeopardize the state's existence or conflict with the manners and moral sentiments of the Germanic race. Mm. The party as such upholds the point of view of a positive Christianity without tying itself confessionally to any one confession. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit at home and abroad and is convinced that a permanent recovery of our people can only be achieved from within on the basis of the common good before individual good. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but that was the religious uh, declaration of the Nazi platform. And churches were like, yeah, that sounds great. We, we want that. And, and do you see a parallel today? Yes. <laughs> who, who else has a thought and wants to jump in on that? You guys are all being so gracious to each other. I think I had that quote marked as well in, in my work in a church. The, the great fear of, of churches seems to be that they'll be irrelevant. And with this great movement happening in Germany, there was a clamoring for relevance. And with Hitler then giving this olive branch, you can be whatever faith you want to be as long as you don't get in the way of Germany. And then also starting to create, there was a church party. There were, he started doing basically super PACs to get elections that were motivated by people in the pews. People were getting pulled in to be able to make sure you vote for this person, for this thing. and It gave them power. And that's the core of this is that the clamoring of the church to have power in the world. And we talked about a misunderstanding of God. I think, Tim, that was one of your comments early on. I think also um, when we hear the word kingdom of God, there are some very specific things that pop into some people's minds when they think of the kingdom of God. They think of power and they think of death and destruction of all of God's enemies. And it's a very violent, aggressive thing. A friend of mine sent me a quote from a new book, Jesus and John Wayne. And evangelical support for Trump was no aberration, nor was it merely a pragmatic choice. It was rather the culmination of evangelicals' embrace of militant masculinity and ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and contones the callous display of power. Manuel, I would guess that sounds a little familiar to uh, 1930s Germans. They were humiliated. And Hitler came in and said, we can make you powerful again. Um, and this is how we're going to do it. And people were there for it, as the kids say. They were, they were ready to do it. So they jumped on board. And I, one of the things I read about is that they were using the great Norse sagas and all of these really epic tales to tell the tale of Aryan power and supremacy. And I've spent my time, I've spent my fair share of time in some pretty conservative evangelical spaces. And they're not telling the Norse sagas, but they're telling some pretty powerful tales of white men doing grand things. Um, so this would, it was primed. The pump was primed in America. Wow. Yeah, we don't have to be wimpy like those elites want us to be anymore. The whole metaphor of a spiritual battle has not been our friend. We've, we've, I grew up in this spiritual warfare. We're doing battle. We're the army of God, Christian soldiers, 
all that rhetoric. That's not a good metaphor for the journey because like like what uh, Blake just said, everyone, I even struggle now even saying the kingdom of God. It it just doesn't set well with me because of the fact of what's implied in, in a kingdom because God's, that's just not, it, this not that's not what God had in mind. I don't think so. So it is very true. It's a we've been groomed. Mm, yeah. Uh, by the way, Kristen Dumay, the uh, author of that book, Jesus and John Wayne, I did a podcast with her a while back. People can find that on the uh, NPE podcast website. Very interesting discussion of how masculinity has been portrayed in the church and how it's played into some of these things. I don't know if anybody, uh, I, and we may have already answered this a little bit, Ronald on the website has asked if we think uh, the current teaching of the fundamentalist church fits with fascist ideology. Agree, disagree? Anybody want to chime in on that? I think it unofficially does. I think, uh, Blake, you hit it right on the head when you were talking about and pursuit of power. It's, It's unseemly to say we need to be in charge for Jesus. Instead of saying we say, no, we need to change the laws, and there's no greater law to change than the anti-abortion movement. And once we do that, we will be helping establish God's kingdom, and he will be pleased with us. But in pursuit of that, you have the allowance and the justification of nearly every other form of evil you can imagine in pursuit of that one goal, with absolutely no plan of what to do after this goal may be achieved. What comes next? How do you clean up the mess of everything you've partnered with in order to make uh, abortion illegal? And so you've got got this unspoken set of new doctrines of what is permissible and what is not. And surprisingly, there are a lot of things that are permissible. And depending on who it's from and depending on where they are going to take the church once we give them power. Uh, That's a really interesting point, Brian, because to get abortion banned, we have to get power. We have to be in charge to make that happen and make America great again. And those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Manuel, I know you have some thoughts on it, but the church cozying up to power for good ends is really not a new development, is it? Not at all. You we were talking before this started, right, about Israel wanting a king to be like all the other nations. And yep. God's, that's, that's not good. You're rejecting me, but I'll give it to you. But even more so, I think we see this in Jesus' teachings. I've got to find the quote here. I have it somewhere. Uh, yeah, it's in uh, Matthew 20, 25 to 28, where Jesus says, he calls them together and he said, the rulers in this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we see this when Jesus is attempted. We we gloss over that. We're like, well, he was Jesus. Of course, Satan didn't stand a chance. Uh, But Hebrews doesn't talk about it like that. right? And I have this interesting quote here from Reverend uh, Frère Mariano Perron, who is a Roman Catholic priest in Madrid, Spain, and he talks about the temptation of Christ, and I found this very telling. He says, the devil is more subtle 
and offers tempting possibilities of being the Messiah, using power to turn the stones into bread for his own benefit, recurring to political or economic power, in the end to Satan's power, to implement the kingdom of God, or reducing his mission to a display of personal prestige or exaltation. In all three cases of the temptations, Luke anticipates the same temptations the Christian community will have to face throughout its history. In all three cases, the only weapon Jesus uses is the word of God. And historically speaking, you see a shift in the fourth century when Constantine becomes a Christian, whether he was really a Christian, but he was in a battle and he had a vision where he saw a cross over a sun and it said, by this sign, conquer. And conquer he did. And when he became emperor and actually pacified Rome as a great statesman, he went ahead and uh, issued the Edict of Milan. And if you're a Christian at that time, that, that was a wonderful thing because you went from severe persecution, your property taken from you, to somebody returning it to you, making people do reparations, making Christianity equal with all the other religions in the Roman Empire. And then later, the next uh, emperor uh, issuing the Edict of Thessalonica, which actually made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. So if you think about it, you went from being persecuted, from being slaughtered for your faith, for living how Jesus actually instructed you to live, to now holding political power and advantage. Constantine, he, he was actually, he became a saint in both the Eastern and the Western church. And he wasn't a great guy. He killed his wife. He killed his uh, son, but he had power and he gave it to you. And Charlemagne, who was a great king in uh, Europe, walked in that same spirit. And one thing that happened close to my hometown in Paderborn was he came through, he won the battle, he put priests in place. The people didn't like the priests, they killed them. So he came back down and killed the people. And then he asked the question, does anybody else not want to accept my priests? <laughs> people were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we'll, we'll take them. And, and that was the spirit in which the church oftentimes, you know, did colonization, did the crusades. Um, you know, and evangelism, where, like, who wants to accept Jesus? Now we're not interested. Anybody else not want to accept Jesus? And so what I'm saying is when that happened, we Christianity lost its heart. It lost what it was meant to be, the transforming power. And, you know. And we lose our moral authority at that point. We, we lose oh. our. Yeah, go ahead. It's very effective, though, and that's why people like it. Interesting. Yeah. You know, we're, it seems like the church through history has been willing to give up that moral authority for political power. And. Couple, a couple of comments real quick. I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get back to you guys. David on says, yeah, he, he even finds worship, battle-themed worship songs disturbing in all of this. Lynn says, the quest for power is a problem. Jesus taught us to be of servitude to others, not to strive to rule over the lives of others. And Wolfgang asks, if we see parallels between Nazi persecution of undesirables and Trump's policies of rejecting asylum seekers. There's a, a loaded and interesting question. Uh, somebody want to jump in on any of those comments? Well, I saw the, the battle theme songs comment and initially nodded my head that the Bible is, in, 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 the Bible is pretty rife with those topics with Jesus is pretty clear that we are in a, a spiritual battle, but 
I think as in all things similar with the conversation about the kingdom, we put our human twist on those words and define it in a certain way. Jesus was in a was in a battle with the forces of evil, and he said so, but he chose to fight that battle by dying instead of just laying waste to everything that he saw, which he could have done. But it, it's to me, it's more about testing the spirits. It's one of the things that Paul says, and it's one of the things that the Declaration of Barman talks about, is testing the spirits. When you hear somebody say, let's be powerful and great again, and that means putting people in camps, invading Poland, and trying to take over the entire world, let's hold the Bible up and say, I don't know if this matches anymore. And so when we take about our battle discussion and some of those admittedly aggressive terms that we find in the scriptures, I think it's important to look at the whole rest of what Jesus did and what the scriptures tell us to know where we are to go with those things. Wow. That's such an interesting point. And I I think it is important for us to point out again, like Tim said earlier, nobody here is saying President Trump is Hitler. We're not making that comparison. What we're trying to say, is there anything that should make us stop as Christians and say, whoa, something is happening in America that we don't want to go there? Because the end result of that in the past of history has been really ugly. In the case of history, Constantine, Hitler, um, and many other places as well. Uh, the the, The Roman Crusades, another example of where power and the pursuit of power and the I think the pursuit of saying others are in the way of God's good work gives us permission to do some things. And so patriotism was a big part of Nazism, of of, of the race, and patriotism has now become a big thing in our churches, that we celebrate July 4th in a big way in our churches, and we celebrate Memorial Day. So what is the danger of patriotism? And and even the, the question that we had laid out for the group is, does patriotism feed into eugenics in, in any way? Does anybody uh, see that there's a tie of patriotism being of a danger to Christianity? I think that patriotism without borders uh, or without a, a fundamental definition will lead to nationalism. And nationalism definitely, I believe, leads to eugenics. You, What I've noticed is that there is an impossible... Brian, let me jump in real quick. Define the difference. What's the difference between patriotism and nationalism? Oh, I don't know the, the actual definition, but from what I've seen, uh, patriotism means loving and supporting your country. Nationalism is believing that your country is superior to all other countries in the world. And that superiority affords a certain privilege on a global scale. Awesome. Good definition. All right, go on. I interrupted you there. No, no, no problem. Um, th- there, I see an impossible conflict of uh, covenants. I see the church standing in the center of the new covenant, which allows us grace, mercy, uh, compassion, and every good gift from the Lord, because we are part of the new covenant. But I see the church placing everyone else on the outside into the camp of the old covenant, which affords them uh, condemnation. Uh, judgment, and all the things that went part and parcel to those who sinned under the old covenant. And as it's impossible to coexist in both covenants, you choose one. And what I think the church doesn't realize is that when we 
claim to be in the new covenant and put everybody else in the old covenant, we ourselves are stepping outside of the new covenant grace and protection and putting ourselves in that very same camp. Interesting. Tell, tell me more about that. Is that what it makes me think of? And you tell me if this is what we're talking about. Bill Clinton cheating on his wife taints Bill Clinton's presidency and his right to be president. Donald Trump cheating on his wife. He's commander in chief, not pastor. Yeah, uh, it's it's that tribalism where if we're all agreeing on these people are working for God and these people are against God, then what they do or say really doesn't matter. We've already justified Donald Trump uh, in everything he has done and is about to do. And we've already condemned, look in hindsight, we've already condemned Clinton and likewise any Democrat uh, who happens to be in that office. Tim, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I, I think that you, it, not to beat up the whole thing, but it goes deeper to back to our understandings of God. And Western colonial Christian civilization has dominated the earth, not because of God's blessing but because of blood, sweat, and tears, and they took whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it, telling us that it was God's blessing. And so for me, once I realized that God valued and is invested in Russian success, China's success, Slavic people's success, Germany's success, Cuban's success, that we're all equal in God's eyes. Not Islamic success, though. Oh, no, I would put them in there, too. <laughs> They're just trying to figure it out like we are. But what, what I'm saying is once it dawns on you that God values and loves them all, what you're doing is you're going to war and you are justifying, destroying God's creation. And see, if, and, 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 and once that sinks into you, it all falls apart because... Even in America, we aren't great because of God's blessing. Now, in saying that, there's, there are obviously are people of faith in the country who follow God. I'm saying systemically, we are not great because of God's blessing. We're great because we went to war and we took whatever we wanted and we cheated and we lied and we spied and we just did it all. And most of us don't know the half of the stories. So that's the kind of pill that is so hard for people to get down to. Because if you realize that God loves the people, if God loved those people and Hiroshima and Nagasaki as much as he loves you and me. Is there some aspect of us being the new Israel then? Like our enemies are God's enemies and vice versa? Oh, I try not to have any enemies. But yeah, I, yeah, the, the, we see ourselves as Israel, certainly. That, yeah. I'm, yeah. Sorry, I'm laughing. That's a whole nother can of worms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wolfgang said here that he, he believes the flag of the United States is worthy of respect, but should not be in our church buildings, nor in our hearts. Lots of good comments coming in. Blake, were you going to jump in there? Yeah, listening to what Tim said, I would say that the church has learned its lesson well from America in the, the way that that we do things, so similar to the way that Israel learned they wanted a king from looking at the nations around them. And throughout history, we look around and say, oh, I want that shiny thing right there. I think the church has learned its lesson. And one of the, one of the most striking parts of the Barman Declaration, the, this resistance document from the kind of breakaway evangelicals in Germany, was this statement. 
based off of the scripture, fear God, honor the emperor from 1 Peter 2.17. We reject the false doctrine as though the church over and beyond its special commission should and could appropriate the characteristics, the tasks, and the dignity of the state, thus itself becoming an organ of the state. And I think that is where patriotism in the church is exceedingly dangerous. I remember in seminary, my professor said, you shouldn't have an American flag in your sanctuary, but pack your bags if you try to get it out, because you will get fired. And it's true. Every church I've been in has had the Christian flag, whatever that is, and the American flag on the other side of the sanctuary. And It's so deeply ingrained in our politics. Uh, The Presbyterians claim that we invented American governance because of our church governance um, was modeled or the American form of government was modeled after us. But I think the way that we go about clamoring for power echoes that we have learned a lesson or two from the American government. It's just I think that's I think that quote from Barman is really prescient for this time that we're in. We I see a lot of people wishing that we were a theocracy. And that's not what we're meant to be. I think it's worth. I think it's worth mentioning here. I always love the word tension, and I think we can live in the tension of, as a colonial power, the United States has been fairly benevolent in comparison to some other world powers in history. We are a good people. I think a good-hearted people. We want to be good, and so I think we can acknowledge some of the good that's been done in the United States and love our country and still want it to be better. And make sure, and I think that's what we're talking about here is, hey, we can love the country and love of the country says, let's not go where other countries have gone in the past. Let's not let that happen. And so in that spirit, if you were alive in Nazi Germany, and it's easy for us to look from now and say, but just think about this, what would you have done in Nazi Germany? And is there anything similar that you feel a tug toward in today's age along those same lines? I heard one friend the other day said, if you always wondered what you would do in Nazi Germany, what are you doing now? Oof. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I hope I would have, I hope I would resist and stand up and be aware that the other pro, the other challenge is this is such a life journey kind of thing. We all have gone through our religious ringers. It's our theological ringers, and we've asked questions, and we're digging. We're still not there, and you can't preach this and just have somebody convert to it, and then get up from the altar and then go away. And now I'm whole. It just doesn't work. And so I think that's the the hard part. But I think that's a good question because we're there. We're closer than any of us really realize. I think. Well, that's a big say. Who out, do you guys think we're there or on our way there? And what would you have done back then? And what are you doing now? I mean, it's interesting. I have so many thoughts about that. So I'm from Germany. And uh, I think we have a question later how we dealt with stuff with our guilt. We, we wouldn't have flags up. And I came here September 9th, 2009, uh, 2001 for the very first time to do my Bible school, two days before 9-11. And all of a sudden there were flags everywhere. And I was like really freaked out because like in my country, that is something you just don't do because of what it means. And recently I've been posting just a few things about, and anybody that has watched anyone's comments on Black Lives Matter, 
is going to be shocked at what people actually think and how convenient it is that you can blame the organization to be Marxist or anti-Christian so you can relegate anything they're doing and not be part of it. And that is, in a sense, what I see the German church did. They saw themselves as the pillar of German culture, or a pillar of German culture. And they took the path of no protest and just be quiet and keep your head down and don't speak up. And there's parallels that I see here. And I think it's the spirit of dehumanizing your enemy. If you dehumanize a person, you can now do with them whatever you will. And, and I see that in the church. I see a church that wants to have political power to make people live a certain way. Sometimes because they believe that if you don't live a certain way, everybody will not be blessed. But there is a worldview, there is a thinking that is very similar. And so it's not so much that the parallels are pretty extreme. Like we're speaking, we're having this discussion now and nobody's coming to arrest us and behead us like right. they did people in Germany. So in that sense, we're not there, but uh, the ideas are the same. The ideas have the same consequences. And that's, I think, where it's time to speak up now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So humanizing people is one thing we can do, sitting with people and saying they matter. And uh, Wolfgang says on our, our page, resisting, declaring our city sanctuaries, assisting undocumented aliens. Those are some things people can do right now. Blake and Ryan, how about you guys? I, I think that also in line with humanizing people is calling out those who dehumanize them and let them know that we are not hating the person who is saying these things. We're just letting you know that this is wrong and this line of thinking is dangerous. It was, uh, it was either one or, or two days ago, Tucker Carlson, who is the most widely watched news commentator on cable, it's like it's, you could say in the country. He said that he calls protesters terrorists, mm -hmm. uh, that handy little label. He said that they, until they are shackled, meaning all the protesters, until these terrorists are shackled and frog marched in front of everyone into prison, then they will not learn the cost of what they've done. And if that does not bring to mind this type of fascist imagery, then I don't know what does. And what I've noticed, and I, I don't mean to pick on this guy in particular, I'm just mentioning him because he has such a wide reach and so much power, that over the last 30 to 45 days, he has lost 60% of his advertisers. And yet there is no slowing down and there is no censorship of his increasing vitriolic speech. Wow. Jump on in. Yeah, as I've looked at the history of it, I don't think we're in uh, late 1930s Germany, but the parallels of the elections in the 20s and, and the build-up are really hard to miss. That's where I see the most correlation is this gathering of power, this silencing of voices, in resistance to make sure that when the time is right, you can do what you want to do. And I definitely feel that. I, I tend to be on the idealist side. I've had a running conversation with a friend of mine about whether or not we're there. And she's adamant that we are. I'm adamant that I don't think we're there yet because I just want to hold out hope that we're not in the midst of that level of, uh, of evil. But in terms of what I would be doing, I, I have to be honest that I do not know. I've got a family. I did all of the people in Germany and, you know, uh, one of the things that I came across in my research is this Sir Prinzip 
the idea of the one leader and then everybody below him is a leader and they're responsible for their job. It's why the Nazis in the Nuremberg trials kept on saying, I was just doing my job. I was just doing my job. I was just doing my job. It separated them from the things that they were doing. They were just being good workers. They were just being good this. And we, I grew up in a different culture from that. Uh, if, if that was what I was brought up in, if that was the, the, the surrounding culture of who, what I was known to be as a person, I think it would have been hard to say no. And that's just me being honest. I'm not going to say I would have been throwing dynamite in tanks and doing all this stuff because I don't know that. I'd like to think I would. But what I'm doing right now is I'm having conversations with people that I know disagree with me as often as I can. And I had one with uh, a, a staff member at my church and a lot of Presbyterians are lamenting the loss of the young people. And why won't they come to church? And one of the things I said to this person was because we will not own the part we have played in all of this. People know that when when you tell a church member, hey, Presbyterians were part of the core of expanding slavery theology in the South. Oh, no, that's not us. That's not us. That's not us. I'm like, no, it is us. And people know it's us. And they won't take us seriously and respect any other opinion we have until we own that it was us. And we've got to be able to take those licks, so to speak and own where we screwed up with the Crusades, own where we screwed up with our support of slavery, own where we screwed up. A lot of good, faithful Christians that look a lot like the people I see on Sunday mornings when we were still in buildings that were in those German churches that just thought they were doing the best they could with what they had. And as much as we want to villainize them, that is the very thing that is driving people towards these power politics. When you're the villain, you go with the most powerful team so you can win so I think it's important for us to not only humanize everybody that's being dehumanized by these powerful forces, but to humanize the people that are blindly following along with it. Because come what may, in November, we still got to live with them on the other side of it. Uh, they're still going to be our neighbors. They're still going to be in our churches. And we've got a long time to go with these folks. So it's important that we show that love to them as well, even if we vehemently disagree with the way they think the country should go. Yeah. Love that perspective, Blake. What would signal to you that we're there? If we're not there yet, what, what would be a signal that we're there? Do you, can you define that? My friend keeps on asking me that. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and here we are, so maybe that means we're there. I don't know. It's. it's I, I think the fear is we're there and we don't know that we're there. It's, <laughs> You know, at, at what right. point, yeah. I, yeah. I have and, to and, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm done. I'm done. I have to steal a Bill Clinton line. It depends on what the the definition <laughs> of there is. Very good. Because <laughs> that, you know, everybody would have something different. The other thing too, it's not. It's a hard for me, at least, uh, to imagine. And Blake touched on this a little bit. Imagine what I would do in Germany because. Although my ancestry has some German blood in it, I wasn't there and I wasn't a German at the time and being faced with the hope, the dream. So that, I think the biggest thing in this whole thing is there's a lot of well-meaning, intended people that just go with the flow. And and even, even you're, when you're talking about Carlson and these guys that just throw this rhetoric around, they don't realize the power of their words. And... I, I'm not a I'm not a big Satanist type person, but evil there is evil, and evil shows up in those fissures. Evil shows up, so 
somebody like Trump can say, can blather on and be just blathering and he doesn't even know what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But when it falls on ears of people who are marginalized, feel left out, feel neglected, feel like they're nothing, feel like everybody's against them, nobody listens to them, those words take on a whole different context. And I think that it's just important to remember that it's like handling eggs. Yeah. yeah. So Kathleen, I just thought of, I, 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 sorry, I, I thought of the sign. If he gets reelected, I think we're there. Um, <laughs> uh, and, it, and it's simply because it is, think of, I think about all of the things that he has done, all of the reasons he has given to not be allowed to be president again. But that offer of power is still there. And if that offer is enticing enough that the American people elect him again through the mechanics of our form of government, that's when I think this is a runaway train now, because then it's going to be Donald Jr. in 2024 or Ivanka, first woman president, and it'll be this great thing. But because he knows that he can't lose power based on all he's done. Yeah. So that was what would do it. Yeah. I think also that... If I look at my own uh, spiritual formation and my own life, when I was a teenager, I was very attracted to some of these neo-Nazi ideas. I actually had a cousin who was a neo-Nazi and was very convincing. And I had a hatred for certain foreigners because of personal experiences. And it took a lot of grace to get out of that, to make me a lover of nations and people. And so if in my formation as a 17-year-old, I think I would have ran into the war full of pride. Now that I understand the value of people and what has happened and the way that changed was actually, I had a friend in youth group who was from Ethiopia, a refugee who was deported. And I went to see him at 4 a.m. when he was deported, he would put in a police card like an animal in a cage. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've been saying that's what I want. And here's this happening to my friends and completely wrecked me and changed my life. And so now I'm standing up for those that can't defend themselves. I understand the heart of the Lord for those that can't defend themselves. But with my own story, I realized the need for humility. And I actually have compassion for those that are stuck in these thoughts of nationalism, of wanting power, because they're also made in the image of God. And it's such a tension because I grieve over that. At the same time, I hate it. It makes me very angry. And then I see it in my own formation. I think what we're lacking is uh, humility and an admission that there's things in my mind, in my thinking that actually are even potentially racist and being anti-racist means to go against those things and understand those things and learn those things. But I think in our culture today, everybody is so quick to point fingers. Those are the bad guys and I'm the good guy and it's all good and all bad. And that's a whole nother concern. Mm -hmm. And so what would I do? I don't know. I was reading up on the white rose and people that gave their life in resistance. I was reading up on father Kolbe who actually gave his life for a stranger in the concentration camp. Niemöller and uh, Bonhoeffer. I wish I could say that's what I would do. And here I am afraid sometimes posting my opinions because that I think are important because I'm afraid I may, may lose some mission support. No. No. Such a good point, Manuel. And thank you for that, for the, the point on humility and the fear. Um, we have Kathleen who is saying she keeps getting told to be nice and stop arguing. And she says, I'm not going to do that. I'll not be silent. And, and I think there are the people you're talking about there, Manuel, who this is all they've heard in the evangelical church all their life. And they believe this is God's heart. And so 
some of us, like you guys are very courageously doing today, have to speak up and say no to that. Maybe the symbol of what we're looking for, Blake, is the old poem about first they came for the socialist and I said nothing because yeah. I wasn't a socialist. And, and maybe that poem, if things would keep continue to head, would be first they came to Portland and put people in SUVs. And I said nothing because I was against looting too. I do wonder about those things sometimes. Tim, were you going to say something? I, I was just going to say that I just lost it. Yeah, we're out of time anyway, so let's, let's great points to finish up. Wolfgang did want to say that Germany is a wonderful place now and has made huge strides in reconciling their past. As I see you shaking and nodding your head, Manuel, in agreement. I uh, says they're now leaders and models of a welcoming society despite many challenges. And so, yes, we do want to acknowledge that sometimes there's a repentance and a healing of a country, and maybe that could happen for us too. Yes, Tim. It came back. I think the, uh, Manuel's comments about humility are essential. And if I remember right, it was Ezra that said, delivered God's words and said, if my people will humble themselves, then will I. So that was like me, Tim, you, Paul, we, America, humble ourselves. That's a choice that we have to make to walk in humility. Nobody around the world would say that Americans are humble or that they or that we're a humble nation. So I've come to add to my understanding of that is that ultimately in the cycle of life, if you don't figure a way to humble yourself, both nationally and individually, you will be humbled at some point. And I think that's one of the crosses where America is at, because if we refuse to work together to and in humility, be concerned about what's good for the other person, knowing that in doing that, then they will be concerned with what's good for me. Then if, if we can't come to some consensus of walking in humility, then we will be humbled by someone. And, and yeah. that's exactly what happened to Germany. Germany was totally humiliated. They were from the, what I've read and from the German people I know, they were down to zero. If, yeah. if, if the guys in World War I would have had their way, they would have eliminated them from the planet. So yeah. it took that kind of thing for them to rebuild. Now they rebuilt and they got Hitler. But the point is that's, that's a process that happens. And, and so I think that's one thing we can focus on is asking for yourself. What does All it right. mean? You need to be humble. Thanks, Tim. I got to say goodbye. Thanks to everybody who came and hung out with us, made your comments. They'll be there. We'll keep commenting. By the way, we've been doing this every week. You. We're going to be on next Tuesday. We're going to go to Tuesday starting next week. So find us there. But also you can go to the Nonpartisan Evangelical website, YouTube channel. We talked about climate change last week and just continue to have discussions like this because we think they're really important. And next Tuesday... The biggie. We're talking about abortion. So that will be one that you won't want to miss because that is always a, a, a keynote topic of what we're talking about. Blake, Manuel, Brian, Tim, and Lauren, who is humbly working behind the scenes for us today. Thank you guys all for being here. All of you who tuned in and with your great comments. Remember that God can fix this stuff. Some may trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of our God. And if we do, like Tim says, mm -hmm. humble ourselves and pray, seek his face and turn from our ways, wicked ways, it says, then God will hear from heaven and heal our land. And so 
Invite let's, some ladies. Let's try it and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Next week. Especially next week. I don't want to see just white guys, okay? Uh, good one. We got a lot of white guys on here. All right, guys. Thanks. We'll see everybody next time. Thank you. Thank you.